0: Hello friends, welcome to First Reading, the Old Testament lectionary podcast for preachers, teachers, and ancient prophetesses. I'm Tim McNinch.
1: And I'm Rachel Wren. This week, we are up to Judges 4, verses 1-7, to the first reading for November 15th. This is the second to last Sunday of year A in the lectionary. Mm -hmm. So Tim, you're up to bat, and if I remember right, there's not much from the book of Judges in the Revised Common
0: Lectionary. You're totally right. In fact, this is the only excerpt from Judges in the lectionary, which is a pity. Mm -hmm so we'll try to make the most of it. Uh,
1: Make the most of it. Am I picking up on a hint of a wish that there was more for Judges in
0: the RCL? Yeah, I love Judges. You know, scholars differ on whether the quote-unquote age of the Judges reflects an actual historical reality, but in the context of the biblical canon, it depicts an era after the conquest, but before the monarchy, when Israel found itself in this sort of cycle of apostasy that triggered political vulnerability and military threat, which was then followed by divine deliverance by these uh, regional heroes, these judges, and a period of stability, which only devolved again into apostasy and round and round (laughs) they went on that cycle. So, So the solution in the sweep of the biblical narrative was the institution of a godly monarchy, a sort of executive branch whose purpose was to create political stability for the perpetuation of the divine legislative branch.
1: Okay.
0: So uh, this book covering the period of spiraling chaos before the institution of the monarchy collects together some of the most colorful short stories in the whole Bible. And the lectionary text this week is the beginning verses of one of the most fascinating and morally ambiguous of these stories.
1: Yeah, morally ambiguous is a great term for the whole book of Judges, I think. <laughs> But uh, this story in particular, when uh, J.L. has a tent spike through Cicero's cerebellum, is quite a doozy.
0: Oh, yeah. But we're actually not quite there yet. The lectionary text okay. this week is the setup for that uh, uh-huh. arguably more interesting and definitely more gruesome story of J.L.'s crafty execution of Sisera.
1: Okay, so how does the setup work?
0: Well, the first few verses recite that pattern that I just described of doing what's evil in God's eyes, and the national experience of foreign domination that results. This time when Israel forgets God, they end up at the mercy of the King of Hazor, a city-state that's way up north of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, that King's general was named Sisera, and he's the bad guy in the story. Mm-hmm. As per usual, Israel gets tired of foreign oppression after a couple of decades. Really? Then they cry out to God for help. Huh. The help that shows up in this story is a prophetess named Vora, or Deborah. She's described as a prophetess who speaks God's words, but also as a judge who, during this season, was the recognized leader of God's people. Now, perhaps we should pause for a moment. What strikes you about this scenario, Rachel?
1: Well, Deborah, she's such a fascinating character. She's one of the few named female judges, she's one of the few named female prophetesses, she's one of the few named female military leaders uh, in the entire Hebrew Bible.
0: Exactly. And that gender dynamic is accentuated in this story because the Israelite general, whose name is Barak, is unwilling to go into battle against Sisera unless Deborah comes along to the battle and holds his hand. Well, I mean, it doesn't actually (laughs) say the part about hand-holding. But you get the sense that Deborah is a force to be reckoned with while Barak is uncharacteristically hesitant, at least for a warrior. Mm. The key declaration is in verse nine, which is just beyond the lectionary reading, which ends at mm. verse seven for some strange reason, where Barak begs Deborah to come along to the battle. And she answers, and this is my translation, fine, I'll go, What whatevs. <laughs> but there'll be no bragging rights for you, Barak, because it'll be by the hand of a woman that God dispatches to Sarah.
1: I like that. It's like Deborah is preempting any mansplaining that's going to happen after the (laughs) battle of who won and why.
0: (laughs) Exactly, exactly. Uh,
1: So so what sorts of sermon possibilities do you see out of this?
0: Yeah, I, I see a couple different ways of reading this, and it could lead to a couple different types of sermons. First, there could be the sermon that's about the ways that god can work even through women
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> the the role reversal in this passage is even heightened by the expectations that are present in the hebrew names of the characters mm-hmm. barak means lightning while Dvorah means honeybee <laughs> but in god's economy leadership and authority arise from unexpected sources In a sermon, you could highlight this dynamic of the passage and then showcase a litany of traditionally unexpected leaders, especially women, leaders in your church, leaders in our society who have furthered godly causes, etc. The challenge to the socially privileged in your congregation is to look with intention for those whom God is raising up as leaders, especially from unexpected social locations. So what's the makeup of your church's leadership team? How can you encourage the bending of gender-based expectations? On the other hand, the challenge to the marginalized in your congregation is to step into the callings that God's giving them with boldness and an expectation of God's help and empowerment that God has great things in store for them.
1: At my dad's church in Marshall, Minnesota, they have a yearly Sunday called Bold Women's Sunday. This mm. would be a great, a great Sunday to do that.
0: No kidding. <laughs> no kidding. Now, on the other hand, here's a slightly different reading. You could use the gender ambiguity of this passage to go beyond the gender binary that's set up by the text and let this passage steer you into a conversation about the ways that gender itself is socially constructed. This is a text that problematizes gender expectations and Mm. suggests, even if only subtly, that God's purposes for the world and God's gifting of people for partnership in those purposes includes transgender and non-binary people. Mm. All of our gifts and potential are prized by God. And even though the Bible is a product of its own time and culture, from time to time texts like this one pop up to suggest that there's more going on in God's mind than the norms that we might inherit from our culture. Mm -hmm. This is just the seed of a sermon idea, but I hope it can give people a push to explore the inclusive love of God and the inclusive recruitment that God does among all sorts of people to find divine collaborators. Mm,
1: That's lovely. I'd never heard that reading of the Deborah story before. You're right. It typically focuses on a really kind of entrenched dichotomy, even if it's upending that dichotomy mm-hmm. between male and female. But you're pushing preachers and, and those of us listeners to go a little bit beyond that. And I think you're right. I think the text itself um, would would hold that reading. So thanks, Tim. That's fun. My pleasure. Well, preachers, if you enjoyed, as always, give us a like on Facebook. Send us some love there. Let us know what you would like to see or what we could be doing better. We'd always love to hear feedback. If you haven't yet done so, subscribe to the podcast. and You can be first to get new episodes. Until next time, I'm Rachel Wren.
0: And I'm Tim McNinch. Happy preaching.